This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. We are in Cannon House Office Building 523. We don't usually hang out in office buildings on Capitol Hill. We have once or twice before. Jim Jordan was the last time we did it. We are with Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida. Congressman, great to see you. It's good to be with you. So um, I want to talk to you on this day, December 9th is when we're recording. Bob Dole's casket arrives at the Capitol today. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on his life in politics his role in American life, and what he may or may not represent to you? I mean, the first thing is just his sacrifice for the country. Most people don't know Bob Dole like, basically enlisted right away. Um, obviously, after what happened at Pearl Harbor, enlisted right away, gave his life to this country, served with a, a tremendous honor. It didn't really matter what his politics was. The fact that he decided that he was going to devote his entire life to the United States. And this is not just about running for president three times. This is about all his time here in Congress, his time actually on the battlefield. Um, this is a man who, you know, frankly, his body was badly damaged mm-hmm. and still continued there was a purpose behind everything that he wanted to do never had the opportunity to meet senator dole mm-hmm. but without question he's one of the great lives in american history we always thank him for his service so i'll definitely make sure i get down when his casket arrives here on the hill there are those who have written that he embodied the american dream small town person russell kansas as you said enlisted went through the depression survived world war ii his community rallied to help him mm-hmm. Then he made a life in politics. And there are also those who observe that his approach to politics and the approach of that era is a bygone era, that we don't deal with compromise as well as they tried to deal with back then. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I agree. It's a different time now. I would say, you know, back then, talking to a lot of the older members here in Congress, uh, Don Young of Alaska comes mm-hmm. to mind, is that they would actually really sit down, spend time with one another. They got a chance to know each other, know each other's families. Uh, it was a time where, you know, you could argue on, of topics A through D, um, you'd never agree, but topics you know E through Z, you can kind of get something done on. Uh, it was a different time on Capitol Hill. Um, it's something, frankly, I think the place misses. You know, I I was in the Florida legislature before mm-hmm. I came here, and so one of the things that we would always do, Republicans and Democrats, we would argue, we would bicker, um, but it was left on the floor. It didn't go into social media. It didn't go into media. We left it there. Um, those arguments are very clear. We would get a lot of other business done, and because you're in Tallahassee in the nation in the state's capital excuse me for about you know four months a year 
you spend time with each other because when you're done with business, what are you going to do? You're going to go out to eat. You know, you see your colleagues, you see them somewhere, you pass them in the halls all the time. It's very different here. Very isolating, actually. Isolating? Yeah. In what way? The members don't talk. Listen, the only members you really talk to are the members you serve with on your committee. And this mm -hmm. is my first time in Congress. Mm -hmm. So the only time I really see, and because of the COVID protocols where a bunch of the me meetings are on hybrid, a bunch of members are on Zoom, you have members who have not been back to the Capitol uh, since COVID hit. So there's not really a time to really work with other members. Uh, secondarily, the way the House is run right now, everything comes out of the Speaker's office. So it's not like there's a bill that members are like crafting together and working together on. You're, you're in a committee room. People are going back and forth, going over a, a, a piece of legislation, so on and so forth. That really doesn't happen here. Mm -hmm. Members come in for their time to speak, their five minutes, and then they're gone. And because of just the commitments that are on all of our times, you never really see each other at night. Everybody's doing the thing that they already have pre-scheduled from three weeks ago. So a lot of Republicans I talk to who are in the House are planning ahead, and they expect the Republicans to win the majority back in 2022. Do you? Yeah, of course. Okay. And if that happens, should Kevin McCarthy be the Speaker of the House? I think he should. I think, listen, Kevin— He would have your vote. Right now, yeah. Kevin has led us. He's done tremendous things with, with everything that's going on here. He, he led us before I got here. So right now the question is, who's going to be the person that's going to take us to the next level? Kevin's proven he can do that. Now what we need to do going forward is making sure that we actually have an agenda and we are working towards that agenda. And we're demonstrating to the American people what Republican ideals are, what conservative ideals are, and what that actually will do for the United States, for its people, and for the next wave of Americans to come. You might know why I'm asking about this, sure. because one of your Florida delegation colleagues, Matt Gates, has said that he's had a direct conversation with former President Trump about former President Trump being Speaker of the House. What do you think about that? Uh, I doubt that's something that President Trump's going to want to do. Uh, Matt, and, Matt, uh, Matt and obviously President Trump talk a lot, and that's fine. Uh, but I think what's going to happen is the members in the body are going to choose from the body. And right now, the leader in the clubhouse is Kevin. Okay. And other members uh, in your conference have said, well, you know, Kevin needs to understand that the Trumpian wing of the House Republican Conference is a little bit more aggressive than he is, and they've questioned some of his leadership moves mm -hmm. and styles. Uh, do you have any questions at all or any hesitation about endorsing Kevin McCarthy? I think the key thing is understanding that everybody has their own moves and everybody's going to have their own styles. What happens in Congress is that you have members who come in into this body from different times, different eras, different moves of politics. Right now, what's coming into the conference, you have members like myself. We are very supportive of President Trump, very supportive of the American First Agenda. We want to see action here in Congress. And that's something where, you know, I would say Kevin is starting to see that, understand that. And I think he's going to make the necessary moves to make sure that the conference moves in that way. More Republicans that are going to come in now. My my class was about 40. We're going to have probably another 40 member another 40 members coming in who are freshmen. And I'm not I don't want to get into the specific numbers because you know we're going to have some Republicans leave. Devin Nunes is actually mm -hmm. leaving right now. So you're going to have more people coming into our conference who you would say are probably more Trumpian, but really what that is is they're about action. They're coming here for a reason, for a purpose. This is not a career for them. This is not a, a lifestyle for them. They're coming here to achieve certain things. They want to see Congress move and act swiftly. And so whatever the leadership is going to be about the most effective way to accomplish that, that's what these members want. And I've talked to a lot of members, especially a lot of the newer members that have come here, my class, the class before. That's really what we want to see. There is a conversation that's been somewhat roiling here in Washington for the last couple of days. Speaker Pelosi has tried to douse it as best she can, mm -hmm. but some progressive members, so-called of the Democratic caucus, have said 
that there should be an effort to punish or penalize with committee assignments one of your colleagues, Lorraine Boebert. What are your thoughts on that? I don't agree with that at all. Listen, I think what you know what Lawrence said with respect to Ilan Omar, she shouldn't have said it. Um, I wouldn't have said it. But that being said, what Nancy Pelosi has allowed this Congress where essentially the speaker can decide who's going to be off of committees. Let's be honest. It's not the rank and file Democrats. It's the speaker that's making this decision. I think it's wrong. The history in this body has been that each party basically allows people to sit on committees and puts them on those committees. They decide themselves. Exactly. The parties decide that. The parties decide that, not the opposition party. And so it sets up a dangerous precedent here on Capitol Hill. Do you want, If you want this place to be um, less congenial, let the other party decide who can sit on committees and when they can sit and when they can't. I think it's a bad precedent. I think it's a wrong move. I talked to Lauren personally. I don't think that, I don't know what's going to happen with with the Democrats, what they're going to decide. It seems right now that that's not going to happen, but we'll see what happens. Do you think some of the incentive structures are out of whack in terms of members coming here, saying things that are provocative, Mm -hmm. getting a lot of media attention, maybe a lot of social media attention? Oftentimes what flows from that is, small dollar donations. Mm -hmm. Even when you're not sitting on a committee, you can raise a ton of money and become kind of a media star Mm -hmm. and not have to legislate. Do you Mm -hmm. think any of the incentive structures, the way politics is being practiced in Washington right now are out of whack? No, I don't. Here's why I'll say that. Because the incentive structure now is you actually are more beholden to what the people want to see. Like nobody's making anybody donate small dollars. I raise small dollars. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of TV stuff. We're doing it together right now, okay? So I do a lot of the stuff myself. If people don't want to donate to you, they will not donate to you. So there's something in the American body politic that is saying, I support this this uh, member of Congress or I don't support that member of Congress. What it also does, it takes away the pull of K Street. You have members who raise low dollars. They don't aren't really concerned with what the lobby core thinks. What they're looking at is the actual policy and what it actually means for the people that they serve and that they represent. So I don't think the incentive structure is wrong. I think the incentive structure is different. And I think what it provides is a more deeper, more immersive, more diverse set of incentives for members of Congress as opposed to only being concerned with what um, their bureaucracy is wanting to do or only being concerned with what the leadership may want to do or only being concerned with what the lobby corps wants to do. Do you deal with lobbyists very often? Yeah, I talk to them all the time. Anything wrong with being a lobbyist? No, I don't think so. I think here's the thing. People, the, lo- the term lobbyist has gotten a dirty word in our politics. What lobbyists do is they represent the interests of their client for the thing that their client is looking to accomplish with respect to law or with respect to budgets. The reality is that members of Congress are not experts frankly, on virtually anything. We are experts in the field that we came from. We know that field. But there's so many other things going on in our politics, so many things going on in our economy, so many other things going on in law that you need an advocate to help explain what the nuances of those issues are. Now, like anything in life, are there good lobbyists? Yes. Are there terrible lobbyists? Yes. That's the reality of life. The key is not the lobbyist. The key is the member. Is the member going to take all the information from all these lobbyists and all these interest groups and then synthesize what the best policy is for their district and for the country? Or is the member just going to be a yes man or yes woman? The age-old question here on Capitol Hill. Byron Donalds is our special guest back for segment two of The Takeout in just one moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. 523 Cannon House Office Building is our location. Kind of quiet as all members of Congress's offices tend to be. We're here with the occupant of that office, brought here by the constituents from the 19th District, Florida. That's right, 19th District. Byron Donalds is our special guest. So do you consider uh, Democrats in the House to be your political enemy or your political rival? Uh, political rival, political adversary. Right now, the It en- feels like the American people think you think of each other as enemies. Um, it seems that way sometimes because our disagreements are vehement. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, they get personal. But the reality is we're still Americans. You know, I could pass, you know, Ocasio-Cortez in the hall or, or Ilan. I sat next to Pramila Jayapal yesterday in a committee. And before we got into the, the topic we were discussing, I asked her if she was ready for Christmas. How are her holidays going? Right. Um, she's a human being. Right. I don't agree with you, but she's a human being. Listen, in any family, we got cousins that we don't agree with, but you still talk to them. Well, sometimes. Right. But you still talk <laughs> to them. And so I think that's the thing we have to remember in our politics is that we are all Americans. The purpose is that the country is successful going forward. Mm-hmm. And that's what we got to keep in mind. I try to keep that in mind. I want to ask you about the Mamba mentality you have here yeah. in the office. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean to you? Because one of the quotes there you have there is, haters are a good problem to have. Nobody hates the good ones. They hate the great ones. Do you uh, want to be hated in politics? <laughs> um, not so much hated, but I think it's a matter of I'm going to be who I am. And you're going to respect it even if you don't like it. Um, you know, a quote from Ric Flair is, you may not like it, but you better learn to love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the kind of the, that's my, that's my idea. That's kind of where I am. Um, I came here for a reason. I didn't really come here for popularity or to be liked. I came focused on making sure that our country succeeds and that our federal government goes back into the, the box, essentially, of the U.S. Constitution. There are people on the other side of the aisles who do not like that, who do not want me to succeed. But I'm not concerned about that. In my life, I feel like if you're not being effective then everybody's going to love you. You know what I mean? But if you're effective, there are going to be people who are not going to want to see you be successful. So that's what the Mamba mentality is about. Like, I'm a Kobe guy. God rest his soul. I love this game. I love this tenacity. And so, actually, when I saw the, the canvas, I said, I got to have that. Mm-hmm. And so I made sure I bought it, brought it into the office. When the game was on the line, he wanted the ball. He absolutely did. But it wasn't just about when the game was on the line. It was also all the work that nobody ever saw. It was the commitment to excellence. It was the dedication to the purpose, to the goal, to the mission. And I think that in life, you know, what makes life worth living, which makes life successful for you as an individual, is what is the mission that you're striving towards? What is the focus? That's what I tell my sons. Do you want to be a member of the Congressional Black Caucus? Yeah, I would be. Because, I mean, yeah, guess what, guys? I'm black. But... (laughs) That being said, I think that when it comes to, politi- to, to political policies, to political agendas, I believe that there are large segments of the black community that are actually quite conservative. They may not vote that way in terms of Republican, Democrat, but in their lives, they are actually very conservative. And I think it's important to bring those conservative ideals to the floor and have those discussions in the CBC. What have the conversations been with the CBC about your membership? Officially, they've been uh, pretty non-existent. Unofficially, I've had a conversation with a lot of members in the CBC. Um, so we'll see what happens. You know, I think coming into this Congress... Is it something you have to apply for? I mean, is it not just considered 
done because you're here? You're black. Mm, you're oh, a member of Congress. It's it's not considered. If it was considered done, I'd be in now. Right. So I, I think. But I think. Look, here's the deal. They're going to make a decision at some point on what they want to do. Uh, would I be a member? Yes. But at the same time, you know, if I'm not, that's not going to stop me from doing what I came here to do anyway. Would you be a member of the Congressional Black Caucus to advance its agenda? The agenda they seek now? Yes. No, because I don't right. agree with it. Okay. But here's the thing. Because I don't agree with it doesn't mean I shouldn't be in a room to discuss it. And that's the key thing. I think it's about having somebody in the room who shares the ideals from a different political perspective, who still wants black America, quote unquote, to succeed and be successful, which is exactly what I want. I want all America to succeed and be successful. When I was in the Florida legislature, I was a member of the Florida Legislative Black Caucus. There were a lot of issues we did not agree on. But I was in the room. I always brought my perspectives. They understood that. On the floor, we would disagree vehemently on some issues. Mm-hmm. But they were also some of my, my, closest, my closest friends in the political process because we have a shared history, shared background, even though our politics are different. Is there a difference anymore between a Republican and a Trump Republican? I don't think so. Listen, because here's the deal. Forget the, the label of Trump Republican or Republican. Talk to voters back home. You see, because Republican voters at home, what they want are an, is an active Republican. I think that moniker Trump Republican is somebody who's active in politics, who says, this is what I'm running on, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to go do it. We're not going to wait. We're not going to play the back and forth, give and take game of Washington. We're just going to be active and going to get it done. I think that's, for me, that's what Trump Republicanism is, if, to lack of a better phrase. And more Republican voters are definitely in that bucket, if you will. And you know what I'm driving at sure. is the agenda and all these voters back home, district to district to district to district, more Trumpian than they were, let's say, Jeb Bush Republican, Marco Rubio Republican. I'm talking 2016, right, right. Lindsey Graham, all the other alternatives that fell by the wayside. I mean, who won is the, this party now the Trump party, essentially? I would say who won the primary. And then who won, that, the, nomina- that, who won, who won the, the nomination, who became president, and even today, who still is the most popular Republican in Republican politics? It's Donald Trump. Do you expect him to run in 2024? I'm going to leave that to him. I think that... What, do you, what, are, you, what are your expectations, though? Right now, I'm 70-30 that he runs. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. It's only a decision he's going to make. Um, if, you, if you know the president... He makes his decision. It's not really made by anybody else. I think what he looks at right now is that he's seeing a country that he does love, a country that he did work for, frankly, fall apart in front of his eyes. So if you were seeing that as somebody who came out on the other side of a political context, you would want to get back in. I think that that's kind of what his mindset is right now. But he'll make that decision somewhere after the midterms. And it'll be obviously it'll be public. Everybody will know. And then the media cycles will begin and we'll go from there. A couple of weeks, as our audience might well remember, we had David Drucker on this program. You might know who David Drucker is. He wrote a book about uh, Donald Trump and all those who are wondering if he's going to run. And if he doesn't, throwing their hat into the ring. Mm-hmm. Do you have any people who are not named Donald Trump that you would gravitate toward if he didn't run? Oh, man. Well, first and foremost comes America's governor, Ron DeSantis. I mean, look, I know Governor DeSantis. Um, he's been a, he's done a tremendous job in our state. So he's like at the top of the list. Then you have Governor Christy Noma, South Dakota. You have Senator Tim Scott. Um, you have the other senator from our state, Rick Scott, who was former governor before Ron DeSantis. Um, and the names go on from there. I think if Donald Trump chooses not to run, we'll probably see 10, 12, 15 people again running for our nomination. But I think to a broader point, it speaks to the depth of our party. We have a lot of people in the Republican Party. Nikki Haley, I didn't even bring her name up. I'm sorry to Nikki. Or Mike Pompeo. We have so many people in our party who have the capabilities to occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. 
And on the other side of the aisle, that list looks pretty short. Do you expect President Biden to seek re-election? I think so. I think he is going to seek re-election. Um, but I mean, if you look at the polling right now, and it's not even so much the polling. Polling comes and goes. If you talk to voters, like right now I'm talking to family members of mine. They're not Republicans. They're not happy. They're not Republicans. They're not Republicans. And most of my, all, virtually all my family are Democrats. Okay. Virtually all of them. They're not happy. And well, they what talk are they unhappy about? Oh, this number one, vaccine mandates. My aunt is a nurse at, in Miami. She's been a nurse for, well, I'm 43, so she's been a nurse for 33 years, okay? She calls me, Byron, why do I have to take this vaccine? I was on the front lines for a year and a half. Why is he making me do this? She's very concerned. She doesn't want to lose her job. Now, obviously, the court's dealing with Does this. Does she believe she has natural immunity because she's been exposed so much? Or she's just hesitant about the vaccine? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Okay. She is an American. She's also a medical professional. She's allowed to make the decision for herself. It's not something where the White House, where the president can decide, who frankly is not a medical professional, can make the determination, this is what we're going to do. That's not his job. It's not his role. The Constitution doesn't authorize it. She's very concerned. My cousin, who works in the Miami Police Department, he had some further choice words for the president. I will repeat them here. But again, he's a lifelong Democrat. There is a high frustration um, amongst rank and file, just regular Democrat voters, not Democrat activists, not Democrat politicians, but voters. And I think a lot of times up here on Capitol Hill, that is what gets lost sight of are the people that you actually are here to serve. And a lot of times you don't start really thinking about them until elections start coming around again. That's the core problem in Washington, D.C. That is the voice of Byron Donalds. We're in his office, 523 Cannon House Office Building. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two, the take. Segment three, rather. We just did segment two, right? That was segment two. You had your coffee. I had my coffee. That's right. Segment three, the take. I'll cover in just, just one moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Congressman Byron D- Donalds is our special guest. Forgive me about that. First year, first term in Congress, right? Yep, first right. term. You gonna make a career out of this here in Congress? No. Okay. How long are you gonna stay? Uh, probably a decade. A That'll decade. be about it. Gonna run for the Senate? Who knows? Governor? Who knows? Okay. Maybe. If the people want me. Mm-hmm. Look, I think that. But I mean, the the, the question is, you mentioned a moment ago that right. action Republicans or action politicians of either party mm-hmm. come here to serve and not hang around forever. That's right. You don't want to hang around forever, if I hear you correctly. No, I don't. Listen, I'm 43 years old. Mm-hmm. In a decade, I'll be 53. Mm-hmm. My youngest son is 10. He'll be 20. I'm going to want to like go live life and not be here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, I'm a capitalist. I like money. I want to go make money, enjoy life, you know, and, and you could go make on there. more money elsewhere. 
<laughs> yeah, I actually took. I took a. I'm pay sure you took a pay to come cut. here. But I mean, look, the reality is, is that you come here for a period of time. Um, I do not believe in being a career politician, being here for 35 years, 40 years. And that's no disrespect to anybody else that made that decision. That's not the decision I want to make. Right. So I want to go back to vaccines for a second because we had on our program uh, back last summer, Larry Hogan. Right. Republican governor of Maryland. I asked him, would you ever consider imposing a vaccine mandate in Maryland? He said, no, under no circumstances. Mm -hmm. I said, why? Because the law and the politics are too messy. I just want to persuade people. Is that where you come down on the question of vaccines? Uh, it's persuasion, uh, not mandates. Persuasion is key. There is no ability. There's no reason to be mandating it at all. Um, I think it's a complete wrong way to go. I think it's a complete violation of governmental powers. I do not think, for, number one, the federal government has no authority to do this whatsoever. It's never happened. There is no legal authority. President Biden knows there's no legal authority. That's why they're losing all these court cases right now. That's number one. Number two, you're dealing with a vaccine that just came out literally at the beginning of the year. And so for politicians to run to the center and say, you must take this, you must take this so I can keep you safe is some of the worst politics I've ever seen. We are a country where people are free to choose and do for themselves. Respect their autonomy. Respect their agency as an individual. Don't tell them what they must do. Just give them the information and allow them to make a decision for themselves. Here's the third thing. When you go down the road of mandates, you're always going to have a third of the people who are just going to say no just to say no because you told them what they must do as opposed to just informing them, even imploring them if that's what you choose to do, but letting the decision be theirs. Do you think the vaccines are a good thing to fight COVID? I do think the vaccines are a good thing to fight COVID. I think it's something where obviously... First of all, pharmaceutical science, modern science is a wonderful thing. We all are taking advantage of that in our own individual health health lives. It has brought us to this point where now the the worst parts of COVID-19, which are frankly hospitalization and death, are actually quite minimal in the United States. That's like not really the concern for a lot of citizens right now. If it's a major concern, go get vaccinated. There is readily available. You can literally go anywhere and get a vaccine at this point. So that's a wonderful thing. But we also have therapeutics. And yes, natural immunity is a thing, even though CDC won't acknowledge it. The Israeli study acknowledges natural immunity and its effects against COVID-19. Is it meaningful you, to you statistically or politically that right now higher rates of hospitalization and deaths can be found in places that are less vaccinated? I think it's a real issue. I toured a couple ICUs in my district. When I talked to the medical directors at my hospitals, they said the people who are in ICUs almost universally are people who never had natural infection and did not get vaccinated. The two things combined. So people who are vaccinated, to, based upon what I've seen, talking to medical professionals, are not in ICUs, which is the thing we have to really guard against. Right. Also, the people who already had natural infection are not in ICUs. That's the, that second part of information, frankly, is what the White House has refused to acknowledge and put out. That's something that CDC has refused to acknowledge and put out. But is data, anecdotal data, that every American has seen? They know it. Frankly, a lot of Americans have lived it. I had COVID. I went through it. I recovered. I'm still here. And so I think that that's where most people are. The politics, unfortunately, have not gotten there. You care about water issues in Florida. Every Floridian does. Mm -hmm. Will the infrastructure bill that you did not vote for help? I think so. I think there's some there's some dollars in there for water infrastructure. Lots of dollars. Let's be very clear about this. The federal government has had a responsibility to basically fix the Everglades and repair the Everglades mm -hmm. from the damage the federal government did 
primarily to the Everglades for quite some time. We've I've been a large proponent of the CERT plan in Florida. Um, this is something where the federal government has not been funding projects. The first president to actually take CERP seriously and start funding it and what was is President that? Trump. CERP. Uh, Central Everglades uh, Restoration Plan. Got it. And so President Trump was the first president to actually fund those projects. It's a good thing for the state of Florida. It's a great thing for our water quality. We have to get the work done. My hope is the administration decides to continue to fund that going forward. A couple of broad-based political questions. I saw a poll that was mentioned in the Wall Street Journal this week that mm-hmm. showed among Hispanic voters, Republicans and Democrats are at parity heading toward the midterm elections. <laughs> yeah, I know. A, does that surprise you? B, what does it tell you? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, like I talked about earlier with, with black voters. a lot of Democrats. Well, then that means they're not paying attention. And this is, of course, the problem. Hispanic voters are actually quite conservative, whether it's socially or whether it's even economically. And I think that what, what happens now is that when you come to our country, and this, I mean, was, this was a trend line that was clearly visible in Florida in 2020. Oh, absolutely. Miami-Dade County was much more Republican than anybody ever thought. And so if you want to say in, in our country, Miami-Dade County is one of the clear epicenters of Hispanic Americans in the United States without question. But it doesn't surprise me because the one thing that Hispanic voters want are the same thing that American voters want. They want safe streets. They want their children to be highly educated. They want to make sure that there are ladders of opportunity to, ex- to access so that the next wave of their family can, quote unquote, live the American dream, can grow and be better than the previous generation. That has not changed. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I don't care what your religion is. That is a core thing that's innate to all hum- human beings. They want their children to be better than them. That's what my mother wanted for me. And so it's not a shock to me at all that when you consider democratic policy right now and you consider the things that, the, that their parties searching and looking for, um, that there are Hispanic voters that want no parts of it. Do you think immigration plays into, into that as well? No. I think what happens with immigration is that it's used as a political football. I was actually having a conversation yesterday that uh, immigration has actually become the third rail in politics. It used to be Social Security. I don't think it's that anymore. I think it's, it's immigration. But even people in the Hispanic community, people of Latin American descent, they want legal immigration as well. There are a lot of people who came to our country, whether it's from Colombia, from Mexico, um, um, uh, from uh, Cuba is a completely different story, yes. from the Dominican Republic, from Chile, from El Salvador, who came through legal means. And unfortunately, they see people and know people who came here illegally. They don't think it's fair. They don't think it's right. And so we have to clean up our southern border. We have to clean up our visa process. And make sure that's efficient and sound. Because I think people, no matter who you are, they actually do want legal immigration. Almost from the very beginning of this administration, there was one issue in which independents were unclear about whether or not they supported President Biden. It was immigration. You could see that starting in February of his presidency. Do you think, generally speaking, this president and Vice President Kamala Harris, for whom this issue has been assigned, have a blind spot about immigration? Of course they do. They've completely failed on this issue. A blind spot, they choose not to ignore it. The reality is is that the Democrats want open borders. They're not concerned about people coming across the border illegally seeking asylum. No, they say they don't support open borders. Okay, but actions speak louder than words. Here's the deal. There was a provision, I forget one of the bills, that would have actually put a clamp on asylum applications for a given a calendar year. It would actually decrease the amount of asylum applications. Who said no to that provision? It wasn't Republicans. It was Democrats. Frankly, it was the progressive Democrats. They scream bloody murder. The president reversed course and didn't change the asylum levels. They want to use the asylum process and, and people to seek asylum at an illegal point of entry. And this is the key thing. People aren't going to the consulate or the embassy in their country. 
they're going using coyotes and using drug cartels to cross our borders illegally. Yes. Right. To cross our borders illegally. And then seek and a, then seek, seek asylum, asylum at an illegal point of entry to the United States. That is wrong. It's wrong. They have a clear blind blind spot on this. And the reason why they have a blind spot is because this is the policy they actually support. They just know Americans, specifically Republicans and independents, don't support it. And so they just choose to ignore it as opposed to dealing with the problem that they have created. Will it be among, if not the biggest issue in the midterms? It'll definitely be one of the big issues in the, in what the, the other midterms. Education is going to be a huge one. Inflation and the economy is going to be a massive one. The purchasing power of working class Americans, of, of senior citizens, has been destroyed under this president. Yeah, destroyed. You're destroyed. And here's why I say that. Wages are up. But wages adjusted for inflation are down. Why? Because the price of gas is up. The price of milk is up. The price of beef is up. The price of electricity, if you let the Build Back Better and the infrastructure bills continue, the price of electricity is going to go up. Those are the basic bedrock needs of every citizen, of every person. And so you mean to tell me that his economic policies, President Biden's, mind you, have led to purchasing power being destroyed of working families and they're going to be supportive of that? Nobody is ever supportive of that. I'm Major Garrett. Our conversation with Congressman Byron Donald in 523 Cannon will continue on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. The takeout continues in just one second. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We are in Congressman Byron Donald's office. Congressman, I want to ask you, you voted against the certification of electoral votes, if I recall correctly, in Pennsylvania and Arizona. Is that right? That's correct. Any regrets? No. Why? Because one of the things is clear from the November election. this was after the events. And first of all, I want to ask you, what is the word you apply to what happened at this Capitol complex on January 6th? I think it was an abject, tra- it was an abject tragedy was for our country. Was it a riot? Yeah, it was a riot. Was obviously. it an insurrection? No. Okay. It How do you differentiate because my audience's benefit? Two reasons. Number one, there's not one person currently being charged by the Department of Justice being charged for insurrection. So not even the Department of Justice, when they go to court, is calling it an insurrection. That's number one. Number two, it did not impede Congress's ability to do its job. We literally came back four hours later it it, and right. did our job. It delayed us, absolutely. We came back under our And job. you would call it a riot. It absolutely was a riot. And it was heinous. And it was disgusting. Something that never should happen in our country at all. I get it. People are upset about elections, upset about what happened. That does not give you the right to breach a federal building. In our country, listen, I always say like this. Liberty, the true essence of liberty, is the freedom of, your, of my fist limited by the proximity of your face. Mm-hmm. I can be as upset as I want to be, but I cannot breach your liberty. I cannot stop you from doing what you're what you're trying to do. If I do that, that is what the criminal uh, justice process is for to adjudicate those issues. So I think people are going to be held accountable. They're going to be prosecuted. But I'm going to go back to the essence of your question. Going back to my reasons to to not certify in those two states, I have made that decision before what happened here on January 6th. So why was I going to change my vote because of it? 
You see, here's the thing. When you come here to Capitol Hill, you have to make your decisions based upon the information that is laid out in front of you. It cannot be based upon emotion. And unfortunately, we have too many elected officials who make emotional decisions, not information-based decisions. If you make information-based decisions, even when you see something heinous, that should not change the thoughts you already had. What we saw in too many states was that election law was violated was violated by secretaries of state, by local elected officials, even courts, the case of Pennsylvania, changed electoral law, but the Constitution is clear that election law is set by the state legislatures. And frankly, they use COVID-19 as an excuse to do it. That is wrong. If the if a state decided that they needed to make major, needed to make emergency changes to election law, then you call your legislature back in and you effectuate the changes. You just don't do it on the fly. You don't do it on a whim. You don't run the court and do it that way because the courts that is not their constitutionally authorized uh, 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 use and powers. Unfortunately, in our country, people just run to the courts for too many things. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that the court, in some respects, has stepped outside its constitutional boundaries. I think that's wrong as well. Right. But there was a certification process in which those two states, as well as all the others, said, these are the electoral votes. We send them to Congress Mm -hmm. to be counted Mm -hmm. because we have certified them. Mm -hmm. Did that not carry weight with you in those particular states? No, because I think once you violate election law, it calls into question how those votes, how you arrive at those election conclusions. And that's the problem. It's like changing the rules of the game in the fourth quarter. If you play the game for three quarters a certain way, then in the fourth quarter you say, you know what, forget those rules. We're going to do it a new way. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me that the people... People, the, the, t- the team that comes out on the losing end is not going to have a problem. Does it matter to you that the Trump and the Biden campaigns, specifically in Pennsylvania, went to court? Mm. The Trump campaign won one thing it appealed for, which was certain ballots, if they weren't in a proper envelope, wouldn't be counted. That right. was one thing that they won. Right. They adjudicated that. Right. And then there were two things that Democrats won from that they adjudicated. But basically, the rules were set. Everyone knew they had gone to court. They had tested the rules that had been changed. And everyone knew what they were. Does that in any way take away your concerns about the process? Because it wasn't as if those rules hadn't been taken to a court before the election, challenged. One side won a little bit, the other side won a little bit, but everyone knew what the rules were going to be, and the election was carried out under those rules. Doesn't that matter to you? No, because the process still is a process. You cannot go to court and say, I want to emergency change it. That's not what the Constitution says. Election law is set by state legislatures. I was served in a state legislature. Mm-hmm, sure. I voted for changes to a Florida's election law. That is the purpose of the legislature, not the court. And I think that's the key thing. That's one of the reasons I objected. In your own state, sure. uh, recently, people who have been long involved in Florida's elections, and I think it's worth pointing out that 2000 is sort of hung around Florida's neck perpetually. Florida's election laws have gotten much better since 2000, unde- undoubtedly. Right. Florida runs really tight elections. Right. And in a bipartisan way, people in Florida have said this rhetoric about the election and undermining faith in democracy has to stop, has Mm -hmm. to slow down. Do you agree with that? I do. But what needs to happen is that the other 49 states, and it's not all of them. A lot um, lot of states run really good elections. A lot of states run great elections. But what we can't have are two sets of rules in certain states. Let's be very clear. In Wisconsin, in in Michigan, depending on the county you were in, the, the rules were different. You can't run elections like that. That actually causes issues with the integrity of elections. Florida has had problems, no doubt about it. We all know about the hanging chads in 2000. We have the best election laws in the country, bar none. We actually allow for early voting. We allow for vote by mail. We were done counting the presidential vote by 1030 at night in Florida. Why? Because we do not allow 
various local election officials to have their own rules about how they're going to run the process. There is one rule. It flows from the state legislature. It is executed. It is followed. And everybody can rely on the vote. And at the end of the day, that's what you want. And yet you there were one still clear some rule. Republicans in Florida who wanted a forensic audit, who thought there were questions about the integrity of even Florida's election. I mean, mm-hmm. do you believe some of this rhetoric has gotten way beyond where the facts actually justify it? I do. I think it has gotten a little out of hand. But here's the thing. The reason why it's gotten out of hand is because you had people in positions of authority, whether it be a court or a local election official, who decided to change the rules without going through the legal process. When you do that, that's like having a referee on the field saying, I know the league office didn't approve these rules, but for the fourth quarter, we're just going to get rid of PI, pass interference. We're not going to look at it the same way. We're going to do our own thing. Go ask the New Orleans Saints from a couple years ago how they feel about that one. Nobody likes it when you change the rules in the middle of the game. When you do that, it's always going to cause questions. And then that's when you have people who are going to now scrutinize every little thing that they see. We have to get back to simple elections where one rule is one rule in each state. Because I don't want to come in here. Trust me. I do not want the federal want government. Federalized rules. No, no. Oh, absolutely not. Right. You don't want that. Every state has to have their rule for how they effectuate elections. If Oregon wants to be a vote-by-mail state, I don't don't agree with that, but that's Oregon. I don't live in the state of Oregon. I live in Florida. We do it right. If that's what Oregon wants to do, then let Oregon do that. But there has to be one rule per state. The rules cannot change on the fly. It has to be that way consistently throughout the process. If you don't like the way it's done, when that election is over, go to your legislature and get it changed, if you can. Mm Mm-hmm. Simple question. Sure. Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. He has the nuclear football. Secret Service protects him. Right. Yeah. He won. President Trump lost. That's the way it is. It is. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any doubt that the 2022 midterms will be conducted properly? I think what happens in 2022 midterms, I think what's going to happen is there's been so much scrutiny in elections. I think everybody on both sides is basically going to do the right thing. Make sure it's clean, it's quick, and it's going to be done. Uh, The second thing is congressional districts are very different because they go in and outside of boundary lines Mm -hmm. and counties and so on and so forth. You typically have two election officials or maybe even three or four or five when you're dealing with congressional elections. So I think it'll be fine. I'm not not as concerned. And I think the other thing is, is that it's just going to be a different election. I think Republican turnout is going to be massive. Um, I think, you know, Democrat turnout is not going to be as big because it's just not um, the inertia, the energy on their side of the aisle. We're starting to see that already in polling right now. Um, the congressional uh, generic ballot favors us in ways it's never favored Republicans ever. Um, we'll see how this continues over the next year. Sounds but like I you're forecasting we'll a tidal wave. Um, we are going to be very, very successful 40, on election 60 night. seats. 60 might be hard. 40? I think it's definitely in the window. Very good. That is the word and the last word for this segment from Byron Donalds, congressman from Florida, 19th District. For those in our radio audience, we need to say farewell. But for those of you on the podcast platforms, Paramount Plus, don't forget that. Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and everywhere else. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We're coming to you from Cannon House Office Building 523. Why are we doing that? Because Congressman Byron Donald's invited us here. It's good to see you. you. Um, We have three. This is kind of the fun and game segment, so you can relax a little bit. I'm always relaxed. Okay, go go ahead. Uh, Three threshold questions. We've asked everyone on the show. We're in our fifth year, so the audience loves these answers because it lets them know a little bit about who they've been listening to for almost an hour. All right. 
Take these in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books in your life. All-time favorite movie or top one, two, or three. And if you're in Florida on a long drive or you're flying to Florida or someplace else and you've got some time on your hands and you are really going to get into your favorite music, what is that music most likely to be by artist or genre? Okay. So the book, the most influential influential book in my life is The Law by Frederick Bastiat. It's the one thing that kind of made me a political nerd, a political junkie. It talks about not Republican, Democrat politics. It's not some expose on a previous administration. It actually talks about the purpose of law through the eyes of a French philosopher who was there at the, basically at the beginning of the French Revolution. Really interesting book. Talks about the actual purpose of law. Forget American politics. Um, and that was tested greatly. Yes. And it failed in certain, certain respects during the French Revolution. Yes. This is a great book. Great. It's, a, it's something I recommend to a lot of people who run for office. Read this first, then let's talk about actual policy. Um, the, mo- the number one movie, Shawshank Redemption. Anytime that thing is on, mm-hmm. I stop whatever I'm doing and I'm watching. I love it. The, the part where Brooks... Oh man, when Brooks hangs himself, like yeah. I'm not a crier. Yeah. That makes me cry. Right. Like I just I love the movie. Great movie. Morgan Freeman was fantastic. Tim Robbins was fantastic. It's an all time classic. My favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Long Ride. Man, I'm a Brooklyn kid. Hip hop. It's, right. it's hip hop all the time. Jay Z, Nipsey Hussle, uh, Tupac, Biggie. Depending if it's a really long ride and it's early in the morning, I got to go classic. Um, you know, Kendrick Lamar, the um, baby, whatever it is. Money Bag Yo. I listen to it all. So there is a conversation that you're well aware of that, and this goes back to what we're talking about in segment four, election integrity, that the Republican emphasis on that Mm -hmm. is undermining elections, undermining democracy. There are also people who are writing that in this next midterm election, because Republicans are now in positions of counting votes, things are going to be done in a way that only benefits Republicans, and Republicans have sort of adopted, as some of the articles suggest, an anti-democratic approach to counting votes. Mm, what are your thoughts on that? I don't buy either premise. Here, the first thing is I don't think it undermines our democracy. I think it strengthens it. You want to make sure that the rules are clear. I think that's what Republican voters are looking for who still vehemently focus on election processes. Let me finish now. They want it to be fair. They want it to be clear. They want to make sure that it's above reproach. That's what we all want. I think if you, because I've had, I've sat down and have had the conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked to people in my district, okay. people around our state of Florida, who this is their concern. We've had in-depth conversations on this. Some of them last in an hour. So I've been through the process. They just want clear rules, and they want them not to be changed on the fly like we talked about earlier. And they can accept a loss if the rules are clear. If the rules are clear, they can accept the loss. If the process is clear, they can accept the loss. If the process is is fair, they can accept the loss. I think going forward about who's going to be counting them, as far as I'm concerned, there's not a new wave of of Republican, quote-unquote, election officials. The count is still going to be administered by the supervisor of elections or whatever. That's what we call them in Florida, Mm -hmm. wherever they are across the United States. So as long as those people actually do everything according to the letter of the law and it's above board and the people who are watching can verify that, then it's fine. And just because you lost doesn't mean there was fraud. I think, look, just because you lost, as long as the rules are clear, you lost. That's right. it. And you have a personal experience with a very close primary. Yeah, very and close. You, there were nine, if I recall, nine in that primary that yep. you won. You won by a little over 700? 774 votes. Exactly. So a bitter pill to swallow for those other eight. That's exactly right. But here's what I will tell you. Tommy Doyle, who's a supervisor of elections in Lee County. Jennifer Edwards, who I think is one of the best election supervisors in the country, who runs it in Collier County. 
They're, they run tight ships. Everybody, every candidate knows the rules. It is clear. We know the process. We all had our watchers there. Everything was run to the letter of the law to a T. That's why when the votes came out and the results were, you didn't have anybody saying, well, oh, I didn't like this because this ballot of th- these ballots came from somewhere. How'd they show up in account? None of that happened in Southwest Florida. And that's why the results, when they dropped, everybody was like, those are the results. Now I move on. Those are the results. Now we move on. Byron Down, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time. No, pleasure. It was all mine. That's it for The Takeout. We will see you next week. Enjoy your week ahead, and we'll see you. I'm Major Garrett. Farewell. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.